to raise funds to make sure that this institution continues to provide you that unique perspective of the world that you expect from us here on a daily basis. 516-620-3602 is the number to call to show your support financially. 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org online. It is now 6 p.m. Stay tuned for... The WBAI Evening News with, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. Stay tuned. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News for Monday, April 29th, hosted by The Independent, New York's progressive newspaper. I'm your host, Lydia McMullen-Laird. On tonight's program, an update on Spain's elections with The Independent's Elia Gran. The Sunrise Movement pressures Chuck Schumer to support the Green New Deal. And David George and Jose Saldana on parole reform. Spain's political future is no clearer after a third election since 2015, with experts saying Monday that it won't be any time soon before the muddle is resolved. The incumbent Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, celebrated after his Socialist Party won on Sunday night. But Spanish politicians are doing the math on how Sánchez might survive the next four years without a parliamentary majority. More on the Spanish elections with the independence Elia Gran later in the broadcast. And Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of the Islamic State group, appeared for the first time in five years in a video released by the extremist group's propaganda arm on Monday. He acknowledged defeat in the last stronghold in Syria, but vowed a long battle ahead. Al-Baghdadi also discussed the Easter Day bombings in Sri Lanka, which killed over 250 people. The group claimed responsibility for the killings. More rain is forecast in northern Mozambique, where the death toll from Cyclone Kenneth jumped to 38, as flooding and pounding rains are hampering efforts to deliver aid to badly hit communities. Continued flooding is expected in the northeastern port city of Pemba and surrounding areas. An estimated 160,000 people are at risk from the second powerful cyclone to hit the southern African nation in just six weeks, officials said. It was the first time in recorded history that two cyclones hit Mozambique in a single season. And President Donald Trump said the National Rifle Association is under siege in response to New York State's decision to investigate the organization's status as a tax-exempt nonprofit. Trump accused State Attorney General Letitia James and Governor Andrew Cuomo of breaking the law with the investigation into the gun rights organization. Cuomo, meanwhile, tweeted that Trump has done nothing but tweet about gun violence. Unlike you, New York is not afraid to stand up to the NRA, he said. As for the NRA, we'll keep them in our thoughts and prayers, he said, appearing to mock an often-cited reaction to mass shootings. Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke has announced his first major policy initiative, a $5 trillion plan to combat climate change. He says the plan will keep the earth from sliding past the point of no return in less than a generation. The former Texas congressman unveiled his proposal on Monday from California's Yosemite National Park. And the Sunrise Movement is pressuring Chuck Schumer and other Democrats to support the Green New Deal. They'll be gathering in front of his office in downtown Manhattan tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. The Sunrise Movement is also holding town halls all across the country to garner support for the Green New Deal leading up to the Democratic primary debate. On Friday night in Manhattan, over 300 people gathered to speak with local representatives, including Jerry Nadler and Nydia Velasquez. The next town hall will take place at the Brooklyn Commons on May 2nd. 
You're listening to Indie Radio News on WBAI. For our first segment, we go to Spain to get an update on the elections with Elia Gran. Some of you may remember Elia as one of the original hosts of this program. Elia, welcome back. Hey, Lydia. Thanks for having me on. It's great to hear your voice. Well, yesterday was a crazy day. These have been nerve-wracking elections. Um, These one of the most important elections that I've lived in my history in Spain. Um, also assuming that the Spanish uh, democracy is only 40 years old, so we haven't had that many elections, but these ones were definitely very, very important. Uh, 75% of the population came out to vote, which is has nine more points than 2016. And the socialists won uh, with 28,7%, but the threat was real. There was uh, three right-wing parties, which were threatening to ally and take over the Spanish state. One of them, books, which you might have heard of, is an ultra-right-wing party, uh, chauvinist, um, anti-immigration, anti-climate change, um, and also with some proposals to bring back weapons to Spain, which is something that actually has never, that hasn't been on the table for many, many years. And the threat was real. Um, thankfully... They were stopped, although books did get into Congress um, with 24 deputies, over 350. Um, We also had a rise in Podemos, who got 14,3% of the votes, who will hopefully ally with the Socialist Party and create a strong left-wing reign for the next four years. But even though it's been it's been a lot of tension and once we found out the results, uh people were outside. I mean the weather's not great, but <laughs> it was just a moment of relief. I was with my neighbors and they opened a bottle of champagne, my neighbors from the Basque country. Also people were celebrating in Barcelona in the headquarters of Ada Colau, who is also um shared the headquarters with the Podemos in Catalonia. So for now, we're relieved, but the question to ask is what happened? How did we get to this point? How is the right wing so on our heels? And what can we do to to fight back and to maintain this, this left wing stability? So what's the significance of all this? What do these results mean for the future of Spain? Well, Lydia, in some ways, we're still having the same prime minister, Pedro Sánchez, which came up with a 28,7% of the votes and who is going to have to ally with another party, probably Podemos, Unidos Podemos, which is Pablo Iglesias' party, which is the party that came from the 15M and the Indignados movement. Now, when we read about, when we think about what's going to happen in the future, we have to look back into the past and understand what happened in these elections. For me, one of the most important factors is the fact that 75% of the population came out to vote, which is amazing. And I think it really shows that people uh, are taking part in democracy because they feel like there's a real threat and that they need to get up and be more proactive. Now, this threat probably comes from the rise of the right, Vox, which um, we all fear that could actually get much more power than it already did. But um, one of the reasons that Vox came in, we can probably pin down, is because of the rise in the number of immigrants that are coming to Spain. And uh, Vox has a very clear xenophobic discourse, 
which targets directly into the immigrant population. Other factors that have influenced in these elections are also the Catalan referendum that was held on the 1st of October of two years ago, where the population of Catalonia was asked if it wanted to be independent. That led to a huge conflict between the central government at that moment was a conservative party and the rise of nationalist parties inside Catalonia and also to the incarceration and trial of many of the members of the parliament, of the Catalan parliament. This has also shaken up uh, the Spanish contingency and has also questioned a lot of the roles of nationalism inside Spain. One of the third factors that I would add on to, to this mix would be the rise of feminism. Uh, for the first time in in years, we see an amazing amount of numbers of people taking part in the 8th of March in protest, uh, in part due to cases of gang rape that have appeared, and also in the change of discourse where women are questioning many of the systematic things that had always happened in Spain. So if we add all these three factors together, we can see more or less where we're at. Now to think of the future, it's hard because I see that we have a much more active and strong democratic uh, population. But at the same time, uh, I'm very fearful that the right is taking up a certain level of voters who were until now um, not participant or were part of a more moderated party so we're in a good place but we just can't fall asleep and it's really a moment to be part of a social movement and it's a moment to be aware of the power that one has as um, a citizen so i want to shift for a second to environmental policy um Kate Arnoff from The Intercept wrote a piece entitled Spanish Socialists Running for Re-Election Sunday on a Green New Deal de España. Um, So what role did the Green New Deal policy play in these elections and how did AOC's Green New Deal here influence Spain's candidate? I'm wondering if you can address that. I'm glad you asked that question, Lydia. Actually, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is one of the most well-known American politicians here in Spain even better than Bernie Sanders, um, a little less known than Donald Trump. And her Green New Deal is something that doesn't strike as completely as new. Actually, the Socialist Party, which is currently led by Pedro Sanchez and is going to rule for the next four years if everything goes as planned, had already proposed a Green New Deal. Their party proposed it in 2008 under Zapatero, but due to the global financial crisis, uh, any progressive policies were just more difficult to pass. But now in this uh, current campaign that they've kicked off for yesterday's elections, they have put out a different number of objectives, um, one of them being reducing all emissions by 90%. We also They also talked about uh, the stop the sale of carbon emitted vehicles by 2040, which is something that is also backed up by the mayor of Barcelona, Ada Colau, and by Pablo Iglesias, who, if he forms a coalition with PSOE, will definitely push for a a green agenda. Now, also in the socialist agenda, they want to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies and create a new ministry of ecological transition. So there's still a lot to be said about what's going to happen and a lot to be seen, but definitely um, there's a big, big awareness here in Spain on uh, climate change. 
And the SOA is one of the largest parties who is actually proposing real change for to deal with with actual climate change. So hopefully with, with their success from yesterday, we'll see changes. And this will also lead to changes that will ally with the unions and the civil societies because this is something that we have to work from the bottom up. And we need, we're very aware that we need the collaboration of everyone to stop climate change. Elia, what's next for Spain? What's coming up politically? Well, Lydia, and seeing that we love to vote, we're going to have elections again in a month. On the 26th of May, the, we're having elections for the city halls in Spain. In the current city where I'm at in Barcelona, which is the second largest city in Spain, uh, Ada Colau, the current mayor and the first woman mayor to run an office for the city, is running for re-election. She has a background in housing activism, and she ran four years ago on the platform called Barcelona en Comú and won. And this year, she's running against Manuel Weiss, a former prime minister of France, and also running against Catalan nationalist platforms and the socialists and obviously the right wing. There's a high possibility that she wins. And in terms of how the current elections have, are going to affect on the municipal elections, it's hard to see right now because they're still waiting to see who the Socialist Party packs with. But there will probably be a very reactive vote um, in the city halls. Hopefully, it will be uh, more leaning towards left-wing parties that will ally with the centralist government. Although there could be a strong response by the national platforms or even the right wing, especially in the south of Spain, where they have already won a number of deputies. So it's all in the air right now, but we'll let you know how it goes. And hopefully the campaign starts uh, starts tomorrow. So with the good weather, we'll be able to be on the streets campaigning for for a month. And I'll let you know how that goes. Thank you so much. Nunca se vive suficiente, le dijo ella al dependiente. Nunca se vive para siempre y fue entonces urgente. Que no entiende el reflejo, no conoce al oponente. Falta de ternura, compromiso indigente. Volveremos a vernos en cualquier otro continente. ¿Quién me ayuda si no yo a caer por la pendiente? Cuando no queda de mi brota. Y si ya tengo el agua que me da la lluvia, si conozco lo grande que me da el cielo, si ya tengo lo oscuro que me da la noche, que entiendo lo que Como salirme de las cuerdas en mi la luz. 
Welcome back to Indie Radio News on WBAA. I'm your host, Lydia McMullen-Laird. The Democrats have the majority in Albany, and some activists are hoping for reforms on issues like parole. Seven of the 19 seats on the New York State Parole Board have been vacant for the past year or so. And to speak with us about why this matters, we're, we have guests today, David George and Jose Saldana from the Release Aging People in Prison campaign. David, I want to start with you. Can you tell us why, what the impact of not having people, enough people on the parole board is and what are you calling for? Thanks so much for having us on. Uh, the New York State Parole Board, uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, holds the literal freedom of thousands of incarcerated New Yorkers in their hands, the righteous power to determine who's released from prison and who remains incarcerated. And so right now, while the law calls for 19 commissioners on the state parole board, there are seven vacancies. Seven vacancies means that 12 commissioners see 12,000 parole applicants every year. And as one might imagine, this leads to myriad uh, procedural issues and frankly, what comes down to serious injustice, really rushed parole interviews in which people only have mere minutes uh, to uh, ask the parole board for their freedom, uh, and also a, a practice of having two commissioners on a parole panel as opposed to three, uh, which means that parole commissioners sometimes don't come to the majority rule decision that they're supposed to, and that delays somebody's uh, freedom uh, even longer. And so a, a, a commissioner, a panel of two commissioners will split. One will vote for release. Another one will vote for denial. And that person is just pushed to the next month and has to be, go in front of another parole panel for their, for their freedom to be determined. So a lot of serious procedural issues, both for incarcerated people and for staff. And that's why we're calling on Governor Cuomo and the New York State Senate to fully staff the state parole board with commissioners who actually embrace and believe in redemption and rehabilitation. Now, why haven't these parole board seats been filled? It's a really good question. Um, you know, we've heard a few things. Last year, the Republicans controlled the New York State Senate, and uh, we knew that they weren't going to confirm uh, commissioners that Governor Cuomo appointed. Uh, they are aver averse to having potentially more incarcerated people let go by the state parole board, and they thought that the parole board was becoming too progressive, so they locked down with the power that they had. Then we heard that the state budget process was taking up a lot of time and energy of state legislators and politicians, and they would do it after the budget. And so what our call now is, is there are no more excuses. The Democrats control the New York State Senate. The budget is over. Uh, we have billions of dollars in our state prison system. Um, it's time to get this done we're calling on Cuomo in the Senate to do this now. Jose, I want to turn to you for a second. Um, tell us your personal experience with the parole board. And also, I would love for you to explain for listeners what is at stake here with this parole board. What is the power that they hold in their hands? Well, the, in, in New York State, the parole board has been reduced to a crapshoot. What this is is that it, it doesn't matter what uh, an incarcerated person does or doesn't do. You can actually discover the cure for cancer or develop the cure for every form of cancer on this planet, and the parole board does not have to attach any value to this. So right now you have most of the parole board, they're formerly incarcerated, 
uh, not former, they're former prosecutors, former law enforcement, and they have a punitive state of mind. So what they do, they don't value rehabilitation. Instead, they're bent on punishment. In my case, the parole board repeatedly denied me parole based on the nature of my offense, which occurred in 1979. It wasn't until one of the new commissioners was actually interviewing me for parole release, and she had a background that allowed her to accept rehabilitation and transformation. She questioned me for 40 minutes, not eight minutes, 40 minutes about my rehabilitative endeavors during 38 years of incarceration. And based on what she saw before her, she decided to release me because obviously I no longer pose a risk to public safety. So you both are going to be doing some work in Albany this month. Can you explain you know, what you're going to be doing there and sort of what the push is and, and what that process is going to look like over the next month before the end of this legislative session? So we're going to Albany. We're going to rally. We're going to meet with legislators. And what we're going to do is we're organizing the, com the community to become involved in this parole reform process, not only to fully staff the parole board, but to change parole boards, the parole board mechanism to reflect not only the community's interests and needs, but to be fair and open-minded in reviewing who should be released and who shouldn't be released. I think that it's really important to state that this issue affects a lot of people. 10,000 older people in the New York State prison system, 9,000 people serving life, an additional 1,000 people roughly who were sentenced to literally die in prison, either by way of life without parole or what we call virtual life parole, life without parole, a sentence of, say, 75 years to life. And those thousands of people are connected to other people who live amongst all of us in the outside community. So hundreds of thousands, countless people, really, are affected by this issue. And we want to make sure that people in positions of power to make the right and just changes hear from the people who are most impacted by these issues. And so to build off of what Jose said, we're going up to Albany to amplify the voices of countless people across the state of New York and to speak truth to power to people that have it. So one issue is filling the seats, but the other issue is who is on those seats. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who you're pushing to get on the seats and what types of people you want to see on there? What difference does it make uh, what type of person is is filling those roles? Well, we what we look what we would like to see is an entire parole board. That's 19 commissioners who believe in redemption, who value rehabilitation and transformation. Because these are the this is the only way that we're going to get a fair and just parole hearing. We're calling for Governor Cuomo to appoint teachers social workers, psychologists, medical practitioners, members of the clergy, people with professional backgrounds and personal experiences that not only reflect the identities of everyday New Yorkers, uh, but also are oriented towards redemption and fairness and justice and, and can embrace somebody's change and transformation as opposed to often the perspective of former prosecutor, former police officer, former member of law enforcement, more generally, who we know from decades of experience on the parole board 
are usually bent on punishment. We we think that era of punishment on the parole board and amongst the commissioners on the board really needs to end. And what about the sort of, can you talk a little bit about the report that you released um, last summer and what you found out um, about elders and sort of the effect of elders being released and, so, and some of the things in your report about the statistics um, of elders after being released in terms of crime rates and, and that sort of thing. I mean, Jose can speak to this even better than I can, but quickly, we know that older people who have served long prison terms are least likely to return to prison, either for a new crime or for a parole violation. Uh, older people, um, including those convicted of really serious crimes, uh, including homicide-related crimes, are least likely to go back to prison upon release. Uh, 30 years of the Department of Correction and Community Supervision's own data uh, says that, and data across the country um, says that. The over-incarcerated people, in my experience, have been the elders in just about every facility in the state of New York. They have transformed thousands of people, helped them transform their lives. And they not only pose the least risk to public safety, but they will actually enhance public safety by becoming mentors and educators to, to, the, to the youth who, for the most part, are being neglected by society. David, George, and Jose Saldana from the Release Aging People in Prison campaign, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. To read more about this issue, check out an article by Renee Feltz in the coming issue of The Independent, which will be hitting streets in the next week or so. Um, and you can also check it out at theindependent.org. Um, to follow up on what RAP is doing, you can check it out at rapcampaign.com. That's RAP with two Ps. And we'll be here every Monday at 6 with Indie Radio News on WBAI. Thank you so much for joining us. Actually, maybe you've been listening to WBAI for a while, but you aren't a member. You heard us asking for support, but you thought we were talking to someone else. Well, we're talking to you. Whatever the reason that you didn't give before, now is the time to put aside the excuses and pitch in. What's a comfortable place to start your membership? How about $10 a month? Maybe more. WBAI counts on listener support. It's our only source of funding. Your gift goes a long way towards bringing you the in-depth news and accurate information that you count on. Call us with your contribution at 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org. Whatever you can do, please do it now. A sustaining member, $10 a month or more, become a WBAI buddy. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Maybe you're a new listener or you've been listening for years, but you're not a member. Now's the time to act. 
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, coverage of the resignation of Homeland Security Chief Kirstjen Nielsen showcased imperial court intrigue and how craven one can be and still be dubbed a grown-up in the room. Media interested in Nielsen's soft landing... Will she get to make the seven-figure salary God intends for ex-officials? Will she have pleasant dining-out experiences? Might have spent more time on the victims of the policies she oversaw. Victims like Laura Maradiaga, an 11-year-old girl the government is trying to deport alone to El Salvador due to a backlogged court's clerical error. The immigration beat is multifaceted, for sure, and media choices about what to look at and who to listen to may be impactful, as the White House looks set to make its war on immigrants a key piece of Trump's re-election drive. We'll talk about all of that with Tina Vasquez, senior immigration reporter at Rewire.News. Also on the show, the Trump administration is engaged in an open campaign of pressure on Iran that feels to many like a ramp-up to war. U.S. sanctions have cost Iran some $10 billion, and now the White House seeks to cut off Iran's oil exports, a big part of its economy, entirely. Asked recently how he could guarantee that U.S. sanctions ostensibly aimed at the country's leaders would not harm the Iranian people, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stated flatly, there are no guarantees. Media coverage is less than helpful, shaped as it is by Iran's official enemy status, and even more by the implicit belief in the 